Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Monday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last time, we talked about the birth of boxing, how the sport went from brutal prize fighting to a more legitimate and important American sporting event. Today, we'll be talking about a sport that is mostly identified as the current great American pastime, football. Today, like we have in the past episodes for boxing and baseball, we'll discuss origins, how football evolved from a primitive rugby-style sport to the game we know today, how the sport defined the identity of many of the elite colleges in America, and finally, an answer to the most perplexing question in all of sports. Why is a football called a pigskin? The answer may shock you. It may not, but it may. For all that and more, here's Matt. Where does football come from and how did it evolve into the game we know today? And once again, that really is the key word, evolve. How did an English game evolve into American football? And I want to ask the question, why did football become as popular as it did? And this will take us to some real American history. All right, let's get a sense of where it comes from. American football clearly evolved from an English village game that they called mob football. Or sometimes they called it Shrove Tuesday football, as it was a tradition to play the game on Shrove Tuesday. This is the day before Lent. Another name for Shrove Tuesday is Mardi Gras. But here, instead of throwing beads and you know, drinking frozen daiquiris, it's, it's playing mob football while downing hearty ales. Mob football is the game from which soccer, rugby, and American football all derive from. There's, there's, there's no doubt. 
And the only rule in mob football seems to have been, as the saying goes, that there were no rules. It was chaos and violence. Uh, One English critic called it a devilish pastime, more a bloody murdering practice than a sport. Contests would pit members of one village against those from another, right? Young men from this village against young men from that village. There was no limit to the number of players on a side. And the goal of the game was to get the ball across your opponent's end line any way possible, uh, running with it, kicking it, throwing it. And the ball, you know, what was the ball? The ball, by the way, was, it was an inflated animal bladder that was filled with air and wrapped in animal skin, like a pig skin, which is why we call football the pig skin. Sometimes the game would be played in an open space between villages, or sometimes the end line was the front door of the parish church in each village, meaning the playing field could be miles long and games could last from sun up to sundown. So very similar to those Cherokee lacrosse games I mentioned in our first lecture. I'm going to greatly summarize this next part. What happens is this. English immigrants, they bring this bloody sport with them to the American colonies. And eventually, this violent game could be found on one or two American college campuses. And that's an important point. When we talk about the rise of American football or football in the 19th century, we are talking exclusively about college football. Professional football is really a post-World War I phenomenon. A game called football was being played at Harvard as early as the 1820s. Beginning in 1827, it was a tradition at Harvard College for the sophomores to play the incoming freshman class in a game that they called football. They played it on the first Monday of the school year, a day that was known at Harvard as Bloody Monday. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. 25 young men, they would line up on each side. They were given a ball, once again, usually an inflated pig bladder. The stated goal of the game was to get the ball across your opponent's goal line any way possible. But the real goal of the game seems to have been to degrade and humiliate the entering freshman class through the infliction of bodily pain. So they would do that. But at the end of the contest, the two opposing teams, they would come together and they would engage in drinking and singing school songs and toasting each other's bravery. The freshman class was now welcomed into the student body. This game of football had been their initiation into the college. It it was hazing and they had survived the test. Yale began doing the same thing in 1840. And then this violent mob football game, which... It's a game that if we were to see it today, we would probably say it looked like rugby, a a, a chaotic version of rugby. This game very, very slowly spreads to a few Northeastern schools, um, Columbia, Princeton, Rutgers. And by the middle of the 1870s, football was still this primitive, chaotic game with few rules. And it was still a game that you could only find in just a handful of college campuses. And it received little notice, almost no mention. But just two decades later, so by the 1890s, this sport had been radically transformed in two ways. First, it was no longer a sport we would watch now and say, hmm, looks like rugby. It was a sport we would watch now and say, that's football. 
That's American football. So the game over those two decades had been changed. And second, this game was the single most popular event on almost every college campus in this country. By the mid-1890s, a college football game was a must-see moment. The late fall was college football season in America, especially the Thanksgiving holiday. In 1893, the, the Saturday Evening Post, they explained the presence of football in the American calendar like this. Thanksgiving Day is no longer a solemn festival to God for mercies given. It is a holiday granted to the state and the nation to see a game of football. So our question today is, is this. How did this happen? How did college football change and become so popular in so short a time? How did we get from a chaotic rugby-like game being played at just a few schools to the American college football craze just a couple of decades later? That's our question. And to answer this question, we have to do two things. First, we have to widen our focus away from football to American male culture more generally. We need to get a sense of the context in which college football became so popular. And then second, we have to gauge the effects of one man on the game, the man who tinkered with the rules and turned that chaotic rugby game into our football. And so I think this is interesting and instructive. Historians debate about what's more important in American history. Is it big, broad cultural trends or is it the actions of specific individuals, which has a greater effect on American history? And I think that in the case of college football, the answer is both. College football's popularity is due to big historical trends and phenomena but it's also because of the actions of one American. All right, let's explore the big cultural trends first. What was the context in which the college football craze emerged? And for this, we're going to look at the last two decades of the 19th century, a time that one historian says was marked by a crisis of manliness. At the end of the 19th century, there were a lot of thinkers out there who said that American men were in trouble. They were undergoing a crisis. And I've come to believe that this idea of there being a crisis, I think that's an overstatement. But at the very least, there seemed to be a lot of anxiety out there among American men at this time. So crisis or anxiety, regardless, as this argument goes, middle and upper class American men, they were no longer feeling manly. And, and for a few reasons. One reason they were no longer feeling manly was the changing nature of work. And because of the growth of the cities, which we've talked about, men were flooding into urban areas and they were being sucked into the world of the corporation, you know, working as clerks and, and, and paper pushers in large corporations. Men were sitting in offices, working at desks, all the while under the control of some faceless corporate structure that was running their lives. You know, so for more and more men, work was no longer something that made them feel manly. Work did not give them masculine satisfaction. A second culprit for the crisis of manliness was the rise of the so-called public woman. It's right after the Civil War that American women get organized and really begin to assert themselves in the larger public sphere. 
you know, more and more women, they were entering the workforce. They were starting to go to college. They, they were demanding the vote. Many of the spaces that used to be male-only domains, they were suddenly becoming sexually integrated spaces. You know, working in a business, going to college, going to the polls on election day, these used to be markers of manhood, the things that only men did, but no longer. And then on top of this, some argued that American men were suffering from a post-Civil War malaise, meaning this. The young men who came of age in the last few decades of the 19th century, well, they had just been born too late to demonstrate their manhood through war, specifically through the Civil War. And these young men, they grew up being constantly reminded of the glories that their fathers had achieved in that war, you know, and through the, the endless speeches and the parades and the, and the tales of how those who came before them, they had earned the, the, the red badge of courage in that war. And specifically up in the north, right, where the soldiers there had been victorious. But rather than feel lucky that they had missed that awful civil war, young men were made to feel as if they had lost the opportunity to prove their mettle, to, to, to demonstrate their manhood on the battlefield. So add these all up. And what you get, some people suggest, is this crisis of manliness. Men no longer felt like men. And so in response to this crisis, American men, they sought different ways to express their manliness. They found different ways to feel like men. There arose an emphasis on what the American politician, Teddy Roosevelt, what he called the strenuous life. This was a, a life of vigorous, physical, and somewhat wild and violent behavior. And the strenuous life was an all-male life. No women allowed. And the strenuous life took on many forms. You know, this is the era when college men segregated themselves into college fraternities. Same-sex groups where men could gather away from the influence of women and women who were entering college at this time. It's in this era that boys were encouraged to join a new boys-only organization called the Boy Scouts to get away from the influence of their mothers and get out into the wilderness where they you know, might find the, the, the hardy pioneer deep within them. And another way of demonstrating one's masculinity was by playing rough, vigorous, violent, competitive sports. And this is why football explodes in popularity in this era. Football became a way for these upper-class college students to vigorously assert their masculinity. It was a sport that young men of privilege played in the nation's finest colleges. So let me emphasize a class component here. Football was originally a game. I don't, we don't think of it this way anymore. But football was originally a game played by upper-class men. We might say ruling-class men to demonstrate their manhood. These were the men who would soon be running businesses and, and, and the military and the American government. And they played this game against each other to demonstrate that they were indeed brave men, strong of body, you know, willing to risk it all on the field of play. We might say that they had a psychological need to play football because they had a psychological need to feel like men. 
After the break, the father of American football tinkers with the rules of the game and makes it way more dangerous. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA Sixth Man of the Year, elite bucket getter. Let's please welcome Jamal Crawford to Point Game, King of the Court one-on-one tournament. If they had it back in your prime, do you think he could have took it all? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think I could have took it all, but I think I would have shocked a lot of people. I think Kobe and everybody in their prime, Kobe would win a one-on-one contest. Yeah, I, yeah, because you got to think, Love he's going to guard. He don't care about guarding. He's going to guard. He's going to exactly. guard. Like, you see him in the Olympics, exactly. he's going to guard. And then on I'm top of that. like that, see that? Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Sam Cassell to Point Game. I remember you came out from crying tears. <laughs> crying tears. I mean, he was in a culture shock. He's, he's going to withdraw us about winning. Remember what I told you? I said, I said, OG, you think I can get paid and go back and play in college because he didn't need it. <laughs> Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So we have the historical context in which a strenuous game like football can become popular among middle and upper class American men. You know, the circumstances that we might say created a need for a sport like football. But we still need the American game of football itself. And for this, we turn to one man, Walter Camp of Yale University. Walter Camp is considered the father of American football, and for very good reason. It's Walter Camp who took that chaotic rugby-like game, and he turned it into football, American football. Camp played the rugby style of football while at Yale as both an undergraduate and as a medical student. And in, in a great irony, he withdrew from medical school because he could not stand the sight of blood. Instead, he will become a football coach at a time when football was among the bloodiest sports of them all. In camp, he, he tinkered with the rules of that rugby-like game, and, and he, he's going to turn it into American football. And he very much liked the, the, the physicality of the rugby version of football, you know, the version that, that he played. But what he did not like was what he considered to be the importance of luck or, or chance in that game. And specifically, he disliked how play started with a, with a scrum 
were a huddle of players from both teams. They chaotically wrestled for control of the ball until it squirted out of the mass of struggling players. If you've ever seen a rugby game, you know what the scrum looks like. Well, in 1880, Walter Camp suggested a rule, a rule that set up a line of scrimmage, a line separating the two teams and dividing them into a ball-carrying team, the offense, and their opposition, the defense. So it's no longer scrummage, it's scrimmage. At first, you could only lose possession of the ball by fumbling the ball away. And so games were reduced to eternal bouts of keep away with teams perfectly content to lose yardage as long as they kept the ball. And so the next year in 1881, Camp said, I have another rule. If the offensive team fails to gain five yards in four tries or or four downs, it has to give up the ball. This emphasis on downs and yardage, it led to the chalking of lines across the field every five yards. It it made the field look like a grid, which is why people started calling the football field the gridiron. So the task was to gain five yards in four tries. And here's what early football was. It was a desperate, brutal slog to advance the ball those five yards. You were not allowed to throw the ball yet. So all the players would be concentrated in one area in order to maximize force for their running plays. And in order to gain their their needed five yards, teams learned to employ something called a flying V or, or a flying wedge. This was a tactic where blockers, try to picture this, they would lock arms or even they would hold on to leather straps that had been sewed uh, onto their teammates' pants, right? So they would link themselves together. They would form a protective V in front of the ball carrier. And these players forming this V, they would get a running start. They did not yet have to be positioned at the line of scrimmage at the start of play. And they would just sprint forward as quickly as they could together. The defense would do the opposite. For the defense, breaking this formation meant just hurling your body into your lock-armed opponents who were coming at top speed. Sometimes they would grab the arm of a teammate and just whip him into the oncoming human wall. It was crazy. It was a very dangerous style of play, especially for men not wearing pads, not wearing helmets. In fact, most college football players back then, they grew their hair long. The idea being that extra hair provided padding for their skull. The long hairs on college campuses back then were the football players. Well, long hair or not, this brand of football was deadly. The the college gridiron was a killing field. 1905 was the deadliest year of them all. In 1905, Three college players and 15 high school players. They were starting to play the game in high school. Three college players and 15 high school players died playing football. So 18 young men killed playing football in one year. In response to this, colleges began cutting their football programs. Columbia University, they abolished football. They canceled football at Harvard. Out West, Cal and Stanford, they had developed big programs. They canceled the game. And when all this happened, 
the president of the United States, he stepped in and he demanded that colleges reform the game in the name of saving the game. The president was Teddy Roosevelt, a man who loved vigorous, strenuous sports, sports like football, sports like boxing. In fact, Roosevelt had been a boxer as an undergrad at Harvard. And now as president of the United States, he firmly believed that sports like football, they it, it bred powerful young men, the, the men who would one day rule this nation. So football had to be saved. And so in order to save football, Roosevelt summoned to the White House representatives from Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. And he told them something has to be done to make the game safer. The game needs to be made safer in order to keep it in existence. And out of all of the bloodshed of 1905, and out of that meeting in the White House with Roosevelt, we get another series of rule changes, changes that make the game safer. These are rule changes that make the game more like football today. These new rules proposed in 1905, they made it illegal to lock your arms and propel teammates through the opposition. You could block for your teammates, but you can't form a human chain. These rules demanded that everyone start the play at the line of scrimmage, which means no more plays with mass running starts. To encourage more deception and uh, like less brutal force, they doubled the demand for a first down. No longer five yards. Let's make it 10 yards. And I think most significantly, in order to spread the players throughout the field, they legalized the forward pass. And so players could better pass. They actually changed the shape of the ball. They, they elongated and kind of pointy tipped the ball so one could throw a spiral. And I think more than anything, it was the legalization of the forward pass that dramatically transformed the game of football. 62 colleges and universities, they signed on to these new rules. They became original members of something called the Intercollegiate Athletic Association of the United States. A few years later, they changed the name of that organization. They called it the National Collegiate Athletic Association, the NCAA. The NCAA was created to save college football by making college football less deadly. And speaking of deadly, there's one last thing that I feel like I need to say here about early college football. It was pretty tough to look at this new game of football and not see aspects of American militarism. And I actually think the same holds true today. The, the early language of football, it drew on military life and experience. You know, there were drills, training camps, you have strategy, tactics, since World War II, we've taken this even further. You know, think about it. Quarterbacks throw the bomb. Defenses counter with the blitz, which comes from the Nazi blitzkrieg. Linemen do battle in the trenches. It was in the 1890s that the idea of sports as the moral equivalent of war, this became a very popular idea in, the, in this country. It, just like war, strenuous sports were said to demand duty and honor and courage and sacrifice, uh, supreme physical effort. And so just a generation, let's go back to the Civil War, just a generation removed from Gettysburg and other great Civil War battles, 
the sports writers in the 1890s were now writing about how college men, they were now testing themselves on the athletic field of battle. But it's more than just this. College football became popular at the exact same time that the United States military was beginning to expand and, and conquer territory abroad. The sport became popular at the exact same time that the United States Army was occupying Hawaii, Cuba, Guam, the Philippines. I mean, this was the beginning of American empire building. It's very tempting to say that it's no coincidence that just as the United States was beginning to spread its influence abroad, conquering territory abroad, that there was a growing interest in this new sport of football. What's the goal of football? to penetrate deep into enemy territory. Well, that's the goal of war and the imperialist project as well. You know, when, when Teddy Roosevelt put together his famous group of rough riders, American soldiers who, who helped conquer Cuba by kicking out the Spanish, he recruited college football players. These were the type of men that Roosevelt wanted. These were the type of men that Roosevelt thought best prepared for this imperialist task. And so that might be yet another reason for the game's surge in popularity in this era. Perhaps Americans loved football because it reminded them of America's growing imperial power. I think it's an interesting thought. All right, let me wrap up. By 1900, college football, in many ways, college football was the university. By 1900, the identities of so many colleges and universities, they were already linked to their football programs and not education. And they still are. I mean, today, if I say Notre Dame or Alabama or Ohio State, you probably think football. Even the term Ivy League, which is now a designation for a group of elite Northeastern schools, it was first a football team. The Ivy League was a football league. So many aspects of our universities today come from the football programs. Schools have official colors because of football. There's no need for a school to have colors until you have football uniforms. Schools have nicknames and mascots because of football. They have fight songs because of football. They have homecoming because of football. Alums come home and go to a football game. Football has transformed American college life. For well over 100 years, for many college students, going to the big game has been at least as important as academic pursuits. And for the alumni, it's the record of their football team and, and not the academic breakthroughs of their students and faculty. No, it's the record of their football team that has been by far the number one source of alumni identity and pride. Trust me, where I work at UNC Chapel Hill, you do not get 60,000 screaming people all dressed in Carolina blue for a history conference. That's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, Sport and Jim Crow.
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.